Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for joining us for this Thursday, March 4th edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Naggett. You know, right before the show went on the air, I was trying to do some research, Googling, to uh, see if I could uh, find out what the uh, year was that Pearl Jam uh, released one of their hits, Push Me, Pull Me, and I couldn't find it. Uh, maybe somebody out there is a uh, rock fan and can tell me what year they released that song, but it was a pretty substantial hit. The reason I thought of it today is push me, pull me strikes me as exactly what we're going through between the Democrats in the United States House who passed what they've called the For the People Act uh, last night, their sweeping uh, voter bill, and what's happening in Republican-controlled legislatures across the country, like certainly Georgia right now. Push me, pull me. Republicans uh, fighting hard to uh, uh, pass laws that they say will provide voter security. The Democrats, of course, say are voter suppression. And the uh, Democrats on the Hill uh, saying we've got to do more to expand the vote as broadly as possible. We're going to talk about both what's happened in Washington and what's happening in a continuing way here in the Georgia legislature, where the fight is fierce and ongoing. Meanwhile, um, the NBA All-Star Game is going to be coming to the State Farm Arena on Sunday. And uh, it's this, this, too, is the subject of some controversy. Uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms, the mayor, has told people, stay away. We don't want you in our city um, because we don't want to see COVID spread. She's discouraging uh, events from being held across the city to celebrate the All-Star Game. That's not going to happen. Events are already planned. Um, and uh, at the same time, Governor Kemp has announced that he's expanding the number of vaccine sites across the state in expectation of getting a big supply of vaccines next week. Teachers will begin getting vaccinated. I think Monday is the date for that. But the governor is pushing back against critics who say they want to know why Georgia is at the bottom of the states in terms of vaccines that have already been uh, given out, shots in arms. Uh, he says what's been happening here is that Georgia has addressed the needs of the most vulnerable citizens, uh, residents of the state. So we're going to talk about all that and a lot more with a great panel today. It's Thursday, which means my partner on the show is AJC editor Kevin Riley. Hey, Kevin, thanks for being here. Hey, good morning, Bill. Glad to be here and uh, really a great panel today with lots to talk about. So I'm looking forward to the show. This will be fun. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, State Representative Mary Margaret Oliver, a Democrat from Decatur, is back with us. Uh, we, of course, get to see each other. We can't broadcast this, unfortunately. The technology won't allow it. But Mary Margaret, you are looking none the worse for wear, given that you're in the middle of a pretty stormy legislative session. And by the way, happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. I'm on the way this morning to the Capitol to vote for the repeal of citizens' arrest, so I'm looking forward to today. Today will be a good day. It's in the Senate. It's in the House Judiciary Committee today. Oh, terrific! Um, um, I, I may ask you about that as the show goes on. Uh, Dr. Andre Gillespie, professor of political science at Emory, also the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory, joins us. Andre. 
I have to tell you something I learned yesterday. On the okay. show, we did an extent we did an extended tribute to Vernon Jordan on the show with our panel yesterday, and we played a couple of sound bites of Jordan at a Clinton Foundation event a couple of years back. And he was asked at what point, what does he do to find ways of having hope? And he said, I think of the lyrics to lift every voice and mm -hmm. sing. And he read some of those lyrics and said, we will persevere. But I did not know, and he pointed it out, that James Weldon Johnson was the man who wrote what is considered always to have been the Negro National <laughs> Anthem. I was fascinated by that. Oh, well. Uh, yes, he did. And so uh, that's part of the reason why uh, uh, our center was named after him. Our founder, Rudolph Byrd, uh, was a scholar of James Weldon Johnson. And in many ways, he was a polymath. So, you know, he is this lyricist along with his brother. They did Broadway shows. He was a diplomat. He was a lawyer. He was executive secretary of the NAACP. So, I mean, he really kind of covers a wide range of interdisciplinary work um, on race that, you know, made him a very attractive figure to name our center after. Yeah, you got me at Broadway shows. <laughs> Thanks for telling <laughs> us a little more about him. <laughs> Edward Lindsay is also back with us today. He, of course, former uh, Republican state representative from Atlanta and now a partner at Denton's, the world's largest law firm. And in fact, Edward oversees the uh, Georgia uh, public policy practice at uh, Denton's. Edward, so tell the truth. Uh, when you see the legislative session unfolding, are you thinking to yourself, gee, I wish I could be back down there? <laughs> no. No. Uh, no. Um, you know, I, I enjoyed my time, and it was time for, to give someone else a shot. But to also uh, answer your question a moment ago, uh, in the spirit of Jeopardy, uh, the answer is, uh, what is 1998 uh, in terms of- Is that the year uh, they released that song? That's the year they released Ed that song. February 1998, Edward, I believe. Somebody may correct me, but I believe that's right. Um, it, it makes me happy just to think that perhaps- you may have been a Pearl Jam <laughs> fan. So, <laughs> all right, let's get right to it. Um, Kevin, I framed this uh, in, right now in terms of the election bills that we're dealing with as a real fight between what's happening with Democrats in, in Washington and uh, Republicans in state legislatures, especially here in Georgia. And, and Kevin, what we've now seen is that the House, U.S. House bill, which passed out, is going to run into very difficult uh, circumstances over in the Senate. Republicans certainly are not going to support it, and there may be some Democrats who don't as well. Uh, but the fact is, this is a batter, battle royale uh, over what seems to me to be the simplest of all, of all rights, the right to vote in America. Kevin? I think uh, you point out a, a very important thing here, Bill, and a lot of it I think in the public debate, I mean, uh, not necessarily the debates within the legislative bodies, but before the public and what the public will understand comes down to how it's framed. If it's if if Republicans are, are cast as restricting and finding ways to keep people from voting, then that's a tough that's a tough mantle to carry around for very long. But if they can find a way not to do that, you know, you, you wonder if they if they will succeed. And I think the Democrats have, from that point of view, the upper hand, the argument that you should try to let as many people vote as possible and to 
improve access and or at least maintain the access you've already created is a to me a better position to be in in the long haul. Um, Mary Margaret, uh, yesterday on the show, we talked about uh, some of the Georgia bills. And one of the things that keeps coming up is the question of what is voting? Is it a right? Is it a privilege? And uh, one of our uh, listeners uh, sent me a note after the show saying, I think you've got it. You're not even thinking correctly about this. It's neither a right nor a privilege. It's the responsibility of people living in a democracy to vote. I thought that was a perspective we haven't talked about and should. Well, legally, of course, it, it is a right. It, it is far more than a privilege. It is a legal right. I participated in the minority report on the three-and-a-half-hour debate on Monday. I, it's hard to explain to uh, some of my colleagues, some Republican colleagues, the emotions of this kind of debate. Uh, from the perspective of, of our, our black colleagues, you, it is a very emotional perspective. From my perspective, and I talked about this as a native Jordan, a native Georgian in my uh, life. I talked about my voting rights cases as a, as a young lawyer across Georgia, where counties, suburban counties now of Georgia, would stand up in federal court and argue that the Voting Rights Act didn't apply to them. I mean, that's the kind of history that that I have experienced uh, as a lawyer trying to enforce the rights of those. So the the uh, restrictions of, for instance, cutting out a quarter of a million people who voted on weekends in 2020 under the current Republican House draft is just it's really shocking to me. It's really appalling that they think they can tell people that that voting is something that they need to work to do. Andra? You know, not only, you know, is it a right, it is a right because it is a marker of citizenship. And so people have used suffrage as a marker of, of the point at which people actually get to be full-fledged citizens in a society. And if you are citizens, then you have the responsibility in a democracy to pick your leaders, particularly in a representative democracy such as ours. And so when you're curtailing the right to vote, uh, you are uh, limiting the ability of people to be able to exercise all of their citizenship rights. And so that's part of the reason why it is troubling, and especially for a group that did not always have those rights, right? It's not a privilege, uh, you know, when it was something that was used as a means to deny you all other kinds of rights in the first place because you weren't actually deemed citizens. So that's part of the reason why it's important, and I think some of the reason why it is particularly jarring to have to see us having these debates, you know, more than 55 years after the passage of the Voting Rights Act. Like this, this should have been settled, but we're seeing how this can still be contested again and again and again. Edward, jump in on this. Well, you know, the first thing to 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 remember is that uh, most of the issues that we're debating today are the result of legislation passed over the last 15 years by Republicans to expand and make it easier for people to vote in Georgia. The no-excuse absentee voting uh, provision was passed by Republicans. The early voting was passed by Republicans. Uh, and what Republicans and, and Democrats, too, in the General Assembly, I believe, should be focused on isn't so much changing some of the rules in terms of how people vote, but responding to how folks want to vote and make sure that that system works. We do have an, an issue in terms of the administrative side 
Uh, two years ago in, in 2018, only 6% of the voters voted by absentee. This past year, uh, in the primary, it was close to 50%. In the general election, it was 30%. That is causing a, a, a strain on our present system in terms of processing those votes and counting them uh, quickly. And But that, that's administrative things uh, that uh, I think the General Assembly should be working on in terms of figuring out a way to, to, to given how people are, are choosing now to vote, and they will continue to vote by absentee more and more. The, the statistics show and history shows that once folks start voting by absentee, they like it, they want to keep doing it over and over again. So that 30% number is likely to decline. So the question is how administratively we're going to do, deal with that. And I'd like to see, quite frankly, the General Assembly spend a lot more time focused on that than on some of the other things they've been focusing on. I have a question, uh, Andre, I think probably for you. So one of the, uh, one of the uh, arguments against the uh, bill in Congress is that the rules around voting are best left to states. Um, as, of course, at this point, they, more, they really are in many ways, or even to counties. Uh, and, and so part of what happened with the 2020 uh, national election was we were all uh, educated on the, the little quirks of voting in each state or how states do certain things. But isn't that argument about leave it to the states, is, is, isn't that uh, just uh, reminiscent of the argument against so many other efforts to enfranchised people throughout our history? Um, you know, so I think I think you raise a good point, and, and I want to touch on that and something that Ed said as well. So when thinking about that, the voting rights, if, if, if this were a problem, then there shouldn't have been a Voting Rights Act in the first place. And so there are ways in which, you know, federal law always has supremacy over over state law for things that, you know, fall under sort of the constitutional purview of the legislative branch. Um, and so there can be federal oversight over elections while election administration is left to the states. Um, and if the federal government, you know, pursuant to its enforcing the 15th Amendment, sees that there are problems, it can intervene in order to be able to do that. So, I mean, just the idea that, like, the federal government has no say in this, I just don't think holds water. And, you know, we wouldn't have had other legislation that we are happy to use uh, in order to make that happen. And, but I think this also falls to sort of the fact, you know, I think, you know, it's important what Ed pointed out, that all of the things that helped to expand voting access happened during the aughts, happened during a period of Republican rule and control in the state. Um, and I think that that's what makes this current effort really suspicious, right? Because it's happening immediately after an election where the party that controls power in the state lost, uh, you know, some big statewide races. And so it looks suspicious. And so motives can and I think should be called into question. But also just sort of in the history of what's going on, you know, people ask questions about why African-Americans in particular uh, are more likely to be Democrats at this juncture. Part of it also, you know, has to do with the history of which parties have been catering to civil rights in the last half century. But it also has to do with perceptions of government intervention. So do you want big, strong national government or do you want limited government? And in this particular instance, when you see state legislatures attacking voting rights, right, that's pushing blacks towards the Democratic Party, the party that actually wants a stronger national government and bigger government expansion, because that's where rights are actually granted. It was the same thing during the civil rights movement. You couldn't trust state or local government 
um, to enforce, you know, basic civil rights for people to enforce the 14th Amendment. And so where African-Americans turned was to Congress and to the courts in particular in order to make that happen. So, uh, you know, this is just reinforcing this idea that African-Americans like the federal government because the federal government in recent memory has been the one that's actually been more amenable to addressing issues of concern. I can't figure out the plan. Uh, the the opportunity for the Republicans to bring forward what they call bills of voter integrity walks such a fine line politically. They look so bad in the national press to restrict voting. Their goal only can be to restrict goal voting. I mean, the risks they're running, from my perspective, particularly from the folks I talk to and from the vast metropolitan Atlanta area, the risk they're running of telling the voters, we do not want you to vote, seems to me to be very high. And yet they're plodding forward. The Senate is much more aggressive in the message they're sending, uh, eliminate absentee ballots, uh, uh, restrict more significantly. The House proposals are are also restrictive, but not quite as uh, aggressive. I'm very curious as to what the governor is doing or saying about all this. Uh, he's in a very, well, okay. very delicate position. I apologize. I didn't mean to interrupt you there. So, uh, first of all, as, as Mary Margaret said, the Senate bill includes an end to no excuse absentee uh, voting. It ends automatic voting registra uh, registration for voting. Um, and uh, it's, it is a much more uh, uh, extreme measure in that sense than, than most of the uh, House efforts are at this point. Edward, on our show yesterday, uh, and this speaks to something that Andra talked about, her colleague, Alan Abramowitz, yesterday made the point that these, if, if his, his study of the uh, election trends in the 2020 cycle suggests that in states across the country, which had even higher percentages of absentee votes uh, cast than Georgia did, um, he's found it, eliminating or limiting absentee voting wouldn't have changed the outcome of the election at all. And he suggested the same thing that Andra did, which is that when you try to pass these restri uh, restrictive measures, you simply energize the other side, side to get out and make sure they cast their ballots. Your thoughts? Well, uh, just sort of build on uh, Professor, uh, your professor yesterday who's in, his, uh, in his discussion. The fact of the matter is Republicans in Georgia did pretty well in 2020 uh, in November. Uh, they held very securely the state house and the state senate. Uh, they only lost uh, the presidential race by 12,000 votes, and that, quite frankly, lays squarely at the feet of uh, former President Trump. Uh, but uh, Republicans were generally poised to look pretty good in terms of um, uh, of the statewide races that that as of November 3rd. And the, the setbacks that took place uh, in January, I think a large, a large amount of the blame rests squarely with President Trump, who uh, discouraged uh, his base from showing up by claiming widespread fraud, for which there wasn't any real evidence for. So, uh, I agree with uh, with the professor from yesterday that uh, that the the results really. Not only it, not only is it some some questionable policies, but the politics just really isn't there in terms of 
the influence of absentee voting. And getting back to my point earlier, I think that we need to be dealing with the, the paradigm shift that we see in terms of how people choose to vote and make sure that it's, that, that it's able to be done uh, effectively uh, and uh, securely rather than uh, trying to remove a, a way to vote that people are more and more enjoying. Andra, jump and, in. And just to piggyback on, on, on that part, since it seems the problem here was strategic. So President Trump's efforts to undermine confidence in the elections and to cast doubts and to plan that because he was basically telegraphing that um, over the summer were rhetorically effective, maybe for his own branding and marketing, it was effective. But strategically, from a process standpoint, from a field operation standpoint, it was really dumb. And I'll bet you uh, that his uh, field, national field operations person knew this deep down in their hearts that this was a dumb idea and that it wasn't going to work. And so the legislative response that we're seeing in state legislatures also doesn't make sense because it's not there. Like, you don't just change all the rules because you lost the election. If you can't beat them, join them. So, like, in terms of eliminating Sunday voting, because black people do that, right, there's nothing stopping anybody else from getting a bus and rounding all their friends up or their congregants up and taking them to the polls on the weekend to get them to go vote. If you're mad because Democrats voted via absentee ballots, then Republicans should plan their own plan your vote strategy to make sure that they're banking their votes through absentee ballots. Like, it doesn't make sense. These options, these tools are available to everybody. They don't need to be restricted. And it's not the Democrats' fault that Republicans decided to not do that. That's their own fault. Personal responsibility says you cop up to a dumb strategy. And I just haven't seen that yet. Ironically, Andre, that is exactly the argument that minority leader Mitch McConnell is using for why we should not, the Senate should not pass uh, the bill that the House is, because he says it's really a matter of getting the right, your voters out to the polls, which I think is fascinating. Uh, Kevin, I, 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 want, I know you want to jump in, but I, I'd like to ask you to, if you don't mind, to expand on whatever you were going to say. Your paper this morning has a full page ad. Uh, from a coalition of voting rights groups that, uh, or, or or civil rights groups, the Georgia NAACP, uh, Black Voters uh, Matter, the New Georgia Project, and others. And the headline of the full page is, Corporate Georgia, Will You Stand with Georgia Voters? And then it specifically singles out Delta Airlines, Coca-Cola, Southern Company, Home Depot, UPS, Aflac, and then the various chambers of commerce. And, and what we you also have an article in today's paper. Uh, it, it, I think it was Bluestein who, who wrote it. If I'm wrong, I apologize. But essentially saying that the corporations in this town have not really been strong in, in, in opposing these restrictive measures. They've kind of issued more generalized statements saying we support the right of all people to vote. Okay, that's my way of setting up the question. These companies have huge huge uh, numbers of African-American and other minority employees. Uh, you would think that they would be wanting to send a message, and perhaps they still, they still have time, to their employees saying, we stand with you on your access to the polls. Yeah, I, I saw that ad and uh, read Greg's story. Um, of course, you know, I'm always glad to see a full page ad in the newspaper. And if anyone out there has the resources <laughs> to, to place those sorts of ads, pl please do so. But uh, I think that I, what I'm sensing here, and I, I'd really be interested in Ed's point of view on this, which is 
Look, companies keep getting dragged into this politics. I mean, we saw it uh, in last fall and we saw it and they hate that. They hate that. They don't want to have to do that. But I just think the way of the world right now is such that it is unavoidable. And I believe that we will see companies, local companies especially, begin to take stands for the very reasons you point out, their employees, their customers, their suppliers, and just the big stakeholder constituency that they represent because it goes way beyond their 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 corporate walls but ed i know that um you know this is the sort of thing you have some insight on they hate that they don't want to get involved in politics right no they don't they they want to deal with particular issues of of their concern they 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 want to try to avoid that as much as 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 they can well more specifically they hate getting involved in partisan politics or what is perceived as partisan politics. They do want to get involved in things that have a broad interest uh, to to both their customers and to their employees. They want to obviously get involved in issues of particular concerns for their industry. But in terms of partisan politics, no, that's the last thing any any corporation I, wants to get I, involved in. All right. Mary Margaret, I want to bring you in, but but I would take a little issue with what Ed oh, is yeah. saying. Oh, I mean, yeah. the religious liberty bill was fought strenuously by any number of Georgia corporations who were very concerned about the image it was creating for the state of Georgia and how it might have an impact on their business down the road. I would think voter equity would be another example of that. No, no, but that, 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 I'm, I'm, trying, I'm trying to differentiate between an issue and, part, and, and, and trying to choose between one political party or another. That's my point. I was thinking about religious liberty, which was a partisan issue. It was a partisan issue, and they stepped forward, and they were significant in relation to the role they had in, in tamping down that particular bad partisan strategy. Microsoft is getting ready to make a huge commitment to the west side of Atlanta. They're coming to Atlanta as are other national corporations because they want to create a greater diversity of their workforce. The way in which Microsoft is going and, and expanding the, the uh, bank head, Marta Station, I mean, the excitement that the business community that I feel as, a, as someone who supports business in Georgia, for them to come to Atlanta next to that quarry and build that campus for diversity business purposes is exciting. They will have to step into this embarrassing, nationally embarrassing debate again about restricting the rights of voters. Mary Margaret Oliver, thank you for that. There are a couple other legislative issues I'd like to address at least briefly, but we've got to get to a break and we'll do just that afterward. This is Political Rewind. Kevin, Kevin Riley, uh, uh, Dr. Andra Gillespie, uh, Representative Mary Margaret Oliver and Edward Lindsay on the show today. Edward, you'll be glad to know that one of our listeners, Michael Harris, sent me a note saying, yes, Pearl Jam released Push Me, Pull Me in February of 1998. <laughs> you were on top of it, rocker Ed Lindsay. <laughs> Mary Margaret, let me start with you if I can. Um, I, I want to talk this. It's, it's not one of the most uh, significant measures on the a legislative calendar, but but it is interesting in light of the fact that we're still waiting for a bigger vaccine rollout, more people to be included in the group that can get vaccines. Ed Setzler's bill, which would uh, uh, prevent nursing homes, long-term care facilities 
from having from blocking uh, a limited number of relatives, caregivers from coming into those homes to see their relatives, the people they're working with. Uh, I, it, I get the sentiment behind it, but is this an example of uh, ignoring the science once again? It's a, it's a no science bill, and it's getting the, each day the bill gets more and more narrow, more and more narrow. And of course, it's a very emotional debate. Uh, I was surprised to hear uh, Speaker Ralston yesterday from the well say in recognizing uh, former Representative Louise McBee, who's a very respected, very loved lady who died at 96, how sad it was that nobody had been able to visit her for six months. So there's an emotionalism about this debate, but my scientific uh, House District 82 CDC Emory Hospital, my $8 billion medical constituent, I think the hospitals are really worried about this kind of intervention. And of course, Ed Fessler has a, has a long history of a no-science guy, you know, so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm really worried about that debate, the way it's going, and the apparent interest um, and bringing that to the floor of the house. Um, even while that's, oh, Edward, go ahead. Well, um, and, and, and there are some, some difficulties with the bill in terms of trying to, to do the protections uh, to, the, uh, to the residents or patients at particular facilities uh, versus uh, the need to get in there. But let me sort of sort of mix things up a little bit. And, and I'll tell you from a personal standpoint, I've got a mother who's 94 years old and I have seen the dramatic drop in both her mental and physical abilities as a result of the isolation that she's had over the last year. What is the answer to that is difficult, but there is science on, on the side of, of the problems with isolating people, particularly in the later stages of their life. And and quite frankly, the cruelty that has taken place. Now, it's a situation, and, and, and the facility she's in, I think, is trying the best they can, uh, as well as when she had stays in the hospital, two stays in the hospital over the past year. But I wouldn't necessarily call it purely science versus emotion, because there is a lot of medical science on the side of connecting families with loved ones in these facilities for the for the benefit of the of, of of the patient or resident and so um you know but like i said it, it's a difficult thorny issue i want the experts on to to sort of be the ones to ultimately decide that and i do understand what, where mary margaret is coming from but folks have got to understand the 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 trauma that these senior citizens in particular are suffering under as a result of this pandemic because i've seen it i've seen quite frankly the state that my mother is in today versus where she was in mid-March is dramatic. Uh, and and it can be laid squarely to, at the feet of the fact that she's been in isolation for her own health benefits on one side, but it has destroyed her health mentally and physically on the other. So I do understand the difficulties that folks are, are who are trying to deal with this issue. Edward, I think we're all terribly sorry to hear yeah. that your mother is having so yeah. many issues. We're sorry to hear that. Kevin? Um, I would just add to both what Representative Oliver and, and uh, what Ed had to say um, in this way. Uh, let's recognize that part of what the pandemic exposed was the fact that Georgia does a terrible job 
of caring about these elderly people and the facilities that they're in, in terms of how they're regulated, what standards they're held to. And so there are many tragic stories uh, like that out there. And I do think this question of isolation versus uh, preventing the spread of a terrible virus is a very, very difficult one. But let's not pretend that there isn't a much bigger issue here with the state truly caring about these people in ways that are concrete and ways that are meaningful. Andra, this all plays out and is part of a much larger issue that the governor tried to address in a news conference yesterday. Georgia, I think, is uh, last in the number of vaccines, number of shots in arms. It's certainly near the bottom compared to states around the country. Uh, The governor argues uh, that what the state is focused on is the most vulnerable people in the state, people over age 65, people with serious medical conditions. He has held off on allowing teachers to be vaccinated, but that's going to change in the week ahead. I mean, it strikes me, and I'll get Mary Margaret on this in a minute too, that there are arguments on either side of this. There are some of what uh, Governor Kemp says may make real sense, but the fact of the matter is he's pretty much made it clear that he wants to be the state's COVID governor and that it'll be a big part of how he stands for re-election. And so everything he does on this virus is going to be uh, end up as part of a campaign either for or against him. So I, you know, I think that that would have happened regardless of whether or not he wanted to be the COVID governor. And I think that that's actually a pretty risky strategy um, to take. So, I mean, there are lots of trade-offs here. Um, and so, you know, when we're talking about the trade-offs between, you know, engaging people socially versus exposing them to a virus, you know, that could kill them. Um, and that has a greater uh, likelihood of lethality the older that you get, you know, is one of those uh, balances. And Edward, I, I certainly feel for, uh, for, for your mother in this situation and, and brainstorming alternate things to get more people who, uh, you know, are in a position to be sort of isolated and monitored on a regular basis to engage with people to make sure that they're keeping their physical activity up and then keeping their mental engagement up and actually even being able to be a conduit, conduit or a liaison to the family so that people can actually still see each other and engage with their family in ways that's meaningful. But then and then there's also the balance that Governor Kemp has taken in terms of, you know, do we prioritize the economy versus do we prioritize mitigation um, methods as well? Um, And I think President uh, Governor Kemp's stance on that has been pretty clear for most of the last year. and I think right now, if he wants to be the COVID governor, I think he's looking at a really healthy economy. But, you know, when this is all over, I think that there's still going to be lots of questions about his management um, and the same way that, that like lots of other governors are going to be having to face those questions about the decisions that they've made during this time. I really believe that Governor Kemp is spending almost all of his time thinking about the COVID response of the state uh, for real reasons of Georgia's dying, but also political reasons. Uh, His uh, stepping away from other issues uh, to focus on COVID is partly based on what's consuming him, but it's also a political political stance. Let me go back to the isolation issue. The bill is now turning towards uh, legal representatives being able to visit. You know, anybody in the hospital, whether they're Younger and uh, are younger than than, and they have full capacities. Need an advocate in the hospital. That's the strongest argument 
for somebody coming in to help somebody in the hospital. And I'm, I hope that the bill was turning in that direction, although I'm confused about some of the messaging. The COVID response of Georgia is not perfect. It is probably not above average, despite the governor's very, very hard working. Um, and it reflects to me the disparity of our health care system in Georgia. Not only the isolation in a good year of people in the nursing homes. You know, two-thirds of the people in nursing homes have no family at all. I mean, it's a huge percentage. In good times, they have no family and that they're isolated in institutions that may or may not be uh, as what we want them to be. Our health care system in Georgia is not above average. It's not great. It is, in many ways, uh, the disparity of outcomes is horrific. And I think that the pandemic shows us that, the political uh, stance that people are taking against the Joe Biden offerings of free money again under Obamacare expansion. It's a fascinating chess game to watch if you look at it politically. But substantively, it's, it's really horrific the way our health care system is not serving all Georgians. It's serving me. I'm fine. You know, I, I, I can walk to the emergency room of Emory, but it's, uh, it's not serving all Georgians. And that is so clear and so bad for a state of our size and our good economy. Um, Mary Margaret, I think you raise an important point. In, in, the, in the months since COVID, when we've done shows on health care, on Political Rewind, they've mo- almost all been focused on the coronavirus and how we're handling it in the state. I think that uh, our team, we all ought to be looking at doing a much broader show on what the virus has exposed uh, uh, even more about the realities of the healthcare system in uh, this state. And, and I appreciate your pointing that out. Um, Kevin, let me go back to just the COVID story for just a moment. I, I know Governor Kemp gets criticized a lot, but, but let's say, Kevin, we now know that, that Texas Governor Greg Abbott and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis have said, we're opening the doors wide. We're, we, you know, we're happy that the number of cases has gone down nationally. The vaccine is out there. Florida beaches are open for spring break. Texas is opening everything back up. And Kevin, Governor Kemp, has been somewhat conservative and tried to find a balance between encouraging commerce but not going as full goose loony <laughs> as DeSantis and Abbott seem to have gone. Well, I, I mean, part of that may be because uh, President Trump, more or less, is uh, still on the side of those two governors, and uh, he's uh, Governor uh, Kemp has has been eviscerated by the former president. So there's no point in trying to uh, kind of appeal to his followers anymore, I suppose, on Governor Kemp's part. But I, I actually think that there's a very good chance that he's simply learned more, that the Department of Public Health has gotten better. They've been working more to understand what the smart things to do are. Um, uh, Representative Oliver points to a calculation on trying to do better with COVID, but also some political calculation. I don't know if that's if, if any of that's true, but you got to hope that his decisions, as he has more experience with this matter, get better. Well, the fact of the matter is, moving back to the political side, is that every governor, every mayor, and the president uh, will be uh, judged by how they handle this crisis. 
uh, you know, and states that where the people feel like they've been locked down too much or some of the ones, some of those governors are the ones who are most in trouble. Governor uh, Nevin uh, out in California is facing a recall. Uh, Governor Cuomo has other political problems, but some of them are rooted in how he handled the, the COVID situation. Uh, the fact of the matter is that uh, President, by the Governor Kemp, will be judged on how he uh, performs. Uh, and I think, quite frankly, to a large extent, uh, former President Trump was, was judged by how he, by how he performed. Uh, I think that he was looking at much greater chance of being reelected last January than in November, based in large part uh, because of, of how he was perceived to have handled uh, the crisis. I can tell you that there were a lot of conservatives in my family that chose to vote against him because they didn't feel like he had done a particularly good job during the, the COVID outbreak. Yeah, and you know, I think another thing that's really interesting about this is that I think Greg Abbott and Ron DeSantis, though they would have done this eventually anyway, probably prematurely, feel particularly emboldened to do that because they're interpreting the data a lot differently than I think some of us would. So what they are looking at is the fact that California, for instance, with all of its lockdowns and mandates, has a similar COVID infection rate as Florida does. So they're like, whatever, it doesn't matter what you do. So therefore, I'm going to err on the side of liberty as they conceive it to try to get the economy revved up and to you know, not try to restrict movement at all. Um, and I think that it's probably going to be really hard pressed for them if they see a spike afterwards to try to attribute that spike to the actions that they're doing it because they already sort of had a tenuous sort of understanding of what causality looks like anyway. And then there's a lot of noise there that, you know, is allowing them to justify anything that they wanted to do in the first place. Okay, I've got to get to our final break of the show. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Quick program note uh, before we continue with our panel today. Um, we've talked a lot on this show about the disparate impact health-wise that coronavirus has had on minority communities and how it points out once again uh, that uh, underserved peoples in our state, our country, are just not getting the attention they deserve and need in terms of their health care. What we have not talked about but are going to devote a show to tomorrow is the impact that the coronavirus has had on women, women in the workplace, mm -hmm. professionally, and for that matter, women in the home. Uh, it's an important conversation, and there are a great many people, and there's data that suggests that women are, in fact, being disproportionately hurt in terms of their abilities to advance in their companies uh, because of uh, the virus, and that they're picking up additional burdens in terms of doing so much of the work at home. And we have a terrific panel that Amelia Brock has brought together, and we'll have that conversation uh, tomorrow. Um, Kevin, we have, I keep pushing this down the list of things to talk about, but it, we ought to at least spend a minute or two on it. Fawny Willis, the Fulton County DA, is now moving forward with what she suggested a while ago, that she was going to ask the March session of the Fulton County Grand Jury to look at whether uh, Donald Trump uh, should be held criminally liable for his efforts 
to interfere with the outcome of Georgia's presidential election. What's One of the things that's interesting about this is she's gotten pushback from both Republicans and some Democrats who suggest that this is kind of a, a mission that's not going to go very far and that there are more important things she ought to have on her plate, Kevin. But it has attracted, of course, national attention. Yeah, it's a it's a tough spot because there has been a lot of criticism of all the things we have to worry about here in uh, Fulton County. Why why uh, why get into this one? On the other hand, if you were going to make the other argument, uh, and if you watched a lot of the impeachment trial, as I know a lot of us did, Republican after Republican said that if uh, Donald Trump's transgressions were to be dealt with, they were more appropriately dealt with in the courts rather than in an impeachment process. And so if you take the logical next step from there, what happened in Georgia and that infamous phone call seems to present the, the most uh, reasonable legal case to pursue if you're going to pursue one. And I think many people feel that the president, the ex-president, has to have some accountability for his behavior during that period. Well, the question here is if there is to be accountability, and if indeed he did cross the line uh, into illegality, uh, what is the, the best place to conduct that investigation? Uh, a lot of folks feel that that would probably be better done by the U.S. Justice Department on the federal level. Uh, because of some of the issues around the country, as well as what took place on January 6th, rather than simply focusing on uh, on Fulton County, and and that's uh, that's the reason why there's a lot of criticism on both sides of the political aisle uh, of some of the things that the Fulton County DA is working on. Fact of the matter is, we've got we've got a crime problem in Atlanta. Uh, we and your newspaper, Kevin, has been doing a very good job reporting on that. And there are a lot of people within the city uh, and in Fulton County in general that would prefer her to be focusing on those very real criminal uh, concerns in our area and allow something like the Justice Department to be focusing on President Trump, who, an entity that has a lot more resources than she does. I really feel for the new DA. She comes into an office that has been in trouble, significant trouble. For a lot of years, I know a lot of the professionals in that office and the the, the internal uh, unhappiness in the courthouse, the Rashad Brooks case, the uh, contest with the AG, and now something that she has to address. She cannot avoid it, whether she would like to or not. The national focus on Georgia uh, in the last number of months and the national focus uh, continuing with Reverend Warnock's very, very thoughtful comment on the 791-page bill um, that's H.R. 1 in front of Congress, I think she has to deal with it, and she can't avoid it, and I, I, I feel that she's got a tough political road in many ways in the Fulton County Courthouse. And I think there's also a political upside for her to do this. Yeah. So um, when she ran for office, she was the more law and order candidate, which is a really kind of tenuous position to be in um, as an African-American in, in 2020 um, when she was running. And so she's got to demonstrate some street credibility on these issues. And so voting rights is, uh, you know, a place that's pretty non-controversial and should get widespread support. 
um, among some constituents who were initially suspicious of her. So I think the challenge here is for her to do the grand jury differently and to actually do the work to present a credible case. If she presents a half-hearted case that doesn't go anywhere um, because it's half-hearted, like, you know, she can't determine the outcome of, of what the grand jurors will eventually rule. But if it looks like some grand juries uh, that we've seen happen around the country where it looks like folks were phoning it in, then I think that that is a problem for her. Um, but, you know, I think she has to do this, and I think she has to do it well. And if she's not going to do it well, then perhaps she, she shouldn't be doing it. And keep in mind that the Justice Department investigating is also really kind of risky and fraught because it is the Justice Department of the successive successor president who's investigating the previous administration, and that's already been brought because of the amped-up rhetoric that we've seen. All right, it's going to be well, fascinating to watch how yeah. that grand jury un- unfolds. Um, let me, I, I'm sorry, I want to just quickly, no, go ahead, Edward, you want to make a last point on that? Just uh, sort of build on on the very end of what Andre said. Yes, there's some political upside, but, but I see a lot more political downside uh, if uh, if the prosecution fails to deliver uh, based on <laughs> on the press, uh, that's what got uh, her successor or her predecessor in so much trouble. A lot of his rhetoric and a lot of the cases that he brought, high profile cases, did not turn out well, and that's one reason why he got turned out of office. So uh, oh. she, she's facing a lot of political peril. All right, we'll watch this unfold. Mary Margaret, we're coming close to being out of time. But let me ask you a quick question. If it comes over to the House side, are you going to vote to put a statue of Zell Miller, the former governor, on uh, the grounds of the state capitol? Great governor. Should he have a statue? I, the reason I brought that up, and we'll talk about it more fully in a different show, is it does give us a chance, and Mary Margaret, you'd be a great one to have on the panel that day, to talk about the career of Zell Miller and his public life in Georgia. He was a remarkable elected official in many, many wonderful ways, and also in some ways that uh, were a little bit difficult to deal with with him. And we'll have that conversation on Political Rewind moving forward. Uh, That's it for us today. Andre Gillespie, Mary Margaret Oliver, Edward Lindsay, Kevin Riley. It was a great pleasure to have you here for a wonderful conversation today. Thank you uh, for joining us again tomorrow. We're going to talk about the impact that COVID-19 has had on women professionally and in the home. I'm very much looking forward to that show. I hope you are uh, too. So in the meantime, I'm Bill Niga. Take care, stay healthy, wear your masks, even if you've been vaccinated. See you all tomorrow.